Welcome to HashiCast, the self-proclaimed number one podcast about the world of DevOps practices, tools, and practitioners. Right, welcome back to another episode of HashiCast. I, once again, am your host, DevOps Rob, and we have a saying here in the UK, in the DJ circuit, is when it's nice, you have to play it twice. So I've got a repeat guest, right? We have the one and only DevOps Adil, aka Adil Ahmad, coming all the way from East London. And I told you from the last conversation that it was just so spicy, we needed to bring it back. I deliver on my promises. So Adil, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Rob, man. Thanks. Thanks for having me again. And uh, yeah, definitely wonderful back. I'm super excited to continue on this conversation, man. Definitely. It's, it's, it's an ongoing conversation. Um, so, you know, Adil and I were talking on Slack uh, a bit earlier on today. Um, so all this is not planned, right? This just kind of just happened a couple of hours ago. And he asked me a question, which I didn't answer, right? He asked me a question, which kind of relates to some of the things that we were talking about in the last episode that we recorded together. Um, so it's to do with risk and perceived risks, which uh, Adil actually explains that really well in the last uh, podcast. If you haven't heard it, uh, definitely go and check it out. But just for those that haven't heard it, what we'll do is we'll just play that segment now, just so that you're up to speed on it. Let's identify um, or let's ask the questions. You're saying perceived risks or risks, right? Let's ask these questions and then let's work together to identify and validate whether these risks exist. Seeing as security is everyone's job, right? Uh, it also touches upon the shared responsibility model that you mentioned about, right? Is that, okay, some of these perceived risks or some of these risks that generally w- were in scope on-prem, well, now it's the responsibility of the cloud provider. As far as I'm concerned, if it doesn't achieve an objective, then it is it is an unnecessary layer of, of complexity. Also add to that, from a security perspective, right, is that, if I've managed to apply control at one level, by applying controls at multiple levels, which I believe is redundant, right, is, is instead of thinking of it being a fortified security control, rather, I believe it's an added risk because these are all surface attack areas as far as I'm concerned. Right. So based on just hearing that, I'll tell you the question that Dil asked me earlier on, which you know I didn't give him an answer because I thought we're just going to talk about it for the first time on this podcast for everyone to interact with, right? So the question was, and I'll just bring it up so I do not misquote you, what's the risk that security sees in exposing production data to development environments, right? So (laughs) interesting question, really, really interesting question. So I'll give kind of my high-level take on that, and, you know, I'm happy to be swayed by different views and opinions if you know you can make a structured enough argument right so what i'll say is this is the question really about the data or is it about the production sorry the development environment right that's the first thing right so when we think about what security is and we think about the pillars right we're talking about confidentiality we're talking about availability and we're talking about integrity right so in that context, let's think about production data in a development environment, right? Is the confidentiality of that data compromised, right? That's the question you have to ask. If the answer is yes, 
then it probably means that you have an insecure development environment. So it's not really about production data, the question, right? The, the question is about your environment, right? Secondly, does that development environment compromise the integrity of that data, right? Again, if it does, there's something about that environment that's not right. That, that's the source of the problem, right? And then we talk about availability. Now, personally, I fail to see how a development environment can compromise the availability of that data, right? So the answer to that question is, well, in my opinion, that there is no risk to production data in a development environment if your development environment is secure enough. On that, I'm going to throw it over to you to hear your thoughts on that. I just want to say, you know what, I'm, I'm just laughing in the background because you know what, those were my same questions I had, right? They were my thoughts exactly around, like, what is, because I was just trying to figure it out in my head. And the reason why I say this, you know, I was having a conversation with one of, one of my ex-colleagues and we were talking about how we should, as a lead security, should be kind of rather explaining the risk and let have the trust that the, the controls will be in place. And it was at that point, I was like, hang on. I remember three years ago um, where I was as just as much as an advocate ensuring that the production data was isolated from the dev environment. But I never questioned it until today, like and until an hour ago. I think, actually, what's going on here? And those were the very questions I was asking. It's like, okay, is it that, okay, that the dev environment is not secure enough, at which point you've got disparity between prod and dev? Uh, and then in the new era of where things are now kind of more ephemeral uh, and having parity between dev and prod is not so much of an issue uh, and is much, much easier, especially if you do for infrastructure as code, um, that would be a massive red flag. The other thought that I thought, okay, how about this where traditionally develop, dev, developers don't have access to production data. They have access to dev data and operators or operations have production data. Why so in today's world where in the world of SRE, where we consider developers to be as part of the ops team to ensure that they have as much ownership in their, in their development as much as obviously uh, as the ops team are. Um, then in that world, why would there need to be a difference in access between dev and ops with regards to production data? I, I, all of these questions were asking. And you know what? This is one of those opportune moments where I would love uh, and, you know, to have this kind of LBC style live calling question where, you know what, we will be there. All those listeners out there today, please call in and please educate. I'm sure there's probably something I'm missing. I don't know. And and I really would hope that, you know, after uh, this podcast, is, this episode is published, I really, really hope that the security people that are actually pushing for this do have a, a rationale behind it. And I would love to be educated upon. But it's one of those things where, we may not have asked this question until now. And if it is that, for, for example, if it is the fact that there was, uh, or the assumption is that there is disparity between dev and, and prod, traditionally, that, that may be the case. You know, Traditionally, there weren't much uh, security controls that were applied in dev, uh, and there may be numerous of reasons uh, other than, um, say, cost, but outside of cost as well, is that they may feel that security has been uh, kind of, um, slowing down the whole development today. If we, as we as we talked in the last episode, if we embed security to the left, uh, then that slowing down is reduced and will actually speed it up. Therefore, the need to there is 
the the, the disparity shouldn't exist anymore. But yeah, it's, it's it's a genuine question, right? And it's I think it should be always be the beginning of any kind of security uh, when we try to have a security assessment. Even those that we have taken for granted, revisit them. How does that change? You know, with different contexts and in the cloud era. So yeah, I mean, as I said, would be I would love to know if there is a logical rationale behind it. I feel like uh, if we were to have this conversation with, with security professionals, right? By the way, I have I have the utmost respect for these security professionals out there. I just feel like these conversations, it's about time we had them more often than not so that we can learn from each other, educate each other. And I feel like when I work with security professionals, the, the mindset is about uh, blast radius, right? So we'll turn around and say, if something were to happen, how can we limit the scope of the impact, right? Uh, which makes perfect sense. So I guess, you know, not trying to speak for the the security professionals out there, what they would say is that production data is production data and we want to limit the blast radius to production. And we would rather have a a separate set of data for staging and development or whatever the other environments are. But, I mean, like I was making my point earlier on, is maybe we're focused too much on the data, right? Uh, and not how we protect our environments altogether, right? If you think about it, the data is just a subject of the environment. So it's not really the data that you have to secure. It's the environment. I was going to say, that makes sense, right? Because, um, if, and you're absolutely spot on there, that if, if, if maybe we are looking at it in, in uh, narrow-mindedly, in isolation, just in data in isolation, but let's add the context of the principle of least privileged access and the approach of that, where if you don't need access to it, then we should prevent access to it. And I get that, right? That point, as in like the the need for a developer to have production data, you know, at which point you have to ask the question from the other side, as well as from a security perspective is, okay, why is it that you need the exact data? Is it not enough for you to have, say, similar data construct or is it the size? I mean, if it's the size at that point, you can just generate any dummy data uh, in order for you to carry out your performance or benchmarking. If it's the actual, okay, you want to call... A certain construct again i'm sure that can easily be produced as and how as how you are producing production data you know you should then have a similar function to be able to produce development data changing obviously any of those kind of confidential pii or whatever it is those information uh, uh, to allow um more parity within obviously development and production uh, but it's it's really kind of drilling down to understand where the risk is, uh, if it's not data security, as we've kind of really established here, yeah, then it's blast radius. Again, that makes sense. Blast radius, it makes sense. Principle of least privileged access, it makes sense. The operational hazards, again, it makes sense. Um, how much of it is more of a, a governance and risks as opposed to, say, a uh, security or cybersecurity uh, uh, issue? Um, but it's an interesting thought. I, I think the point, rather, it was more, I'm not invalidating uh, that th- th- this uh, being a genuine control. I'm pretty sure it is a valid control in terms of separating the production data from the environment. Rather, it's encouraging the the thought process and, and actually questioning uh, where is the risk of what is the risk that we perceive and, and, and therefore actually there's maybe three or four elements of risk and then we have three or four elements of controls. Yeah, and I think, I think that's important, especially um, when we think about 
Okay, so we're talking about production data in a development environment, right? And my previous statement was, well, maybe it's not about the data, it's about the environment, right? So what can we do to secure the environment? And I guess one of the reasons why, in general, we have this approach when it comes to development environments is because, like you say, there are less security controls on development environments. But what is the reason for that? And I think the main reason for that, when you look across organizations across the globe, is they are trying to remove barriers for developers, right? They want to make life easy for developers to to do their work, right? And that's absolutely the right thing to do, but that does not mean that you have to be insecure in doing that, right? So, you know, you have to find a way to enable developers without putting too much uh, friction in their workflow, but still maintaining the, the confidentiality, the integrity, and the availability of the environment, right? Because, you know, it's as, as big a risk if your development environment is unavailable, you know, as your production environment. It means that when they're trying to troubleshoot security bugs and all those types of things there, they're unable to do it. They can't reproduce issues and so on and so forth, right? So, you know, I think I mentioned it in the last uh, podcast as well. I'll say it again, like security done well, it works for people, not against them, right? And we shouldn't omit security because we think it's going to cause issues, right? Uh, What we should do is find a way to do it well that works for developers, right, and not create friction for them. Absolutely, and I think that should be the the principal objective, right? It's uh, how we can enable and increase the developer velocity within the constraints of, uh, you know, our security concerns or our governance and risk concerns. And may I separate those two concerns here, right? We have a security concern, which is separate from risk and governance. Oh, there are some overlaps. Fair enough, right? But end of the day, for example, where the unavailability of your development environment wouldn't necessarily be a security concern, rather that would be more of a risk and governance, which is really stalling your business uh, kind of cadence, of uh, uh, the cadence of your business applications and the development cadence or the release cadence, right? The whole time to market. And that's the risk and governance will, will come into play. For example, they are looking into they would be focusing on disaster recovery. How is it that you know, the whole mean time to recovery, the whole kind of um, recovery time, uh, recovery time objective, and the whole kind of you know, RTO and PTO, uh, RTO and RPL? So this is obviously all, all governance side of things. Now the thing is, right, it's coming back to that whole security again, like you said, right, working for for you rather than working against you. And I've got this. Pet peeve, that's why I say pet peeve. I mean, I, and this, <laughs> this may be an unpopular opinion, but, you know, I disagree with today's um, interpretation of defense in depth. Uh, you know, the defense in depth in the computing terminology, meaning that, you know, applying you know, security layers at every layer, right? applying security controls at every layer. Uh, and uh, um, I fail to see the rationale behind it. You know, um, some arguments I've, I've or some arguments, rather, some you know, some of the defense uh, of defense in depth uh, I've I've heard is like just in case one of the layer is compromised, or you know, you have, for example, that the, the controls of the data layer is uh, is not as strong, or there's been a mistake, or operators have kind of left it open. Well, you've got something to fall back on, like the network or or, or the uh, the perimeter from coming in. To which I would say that you you lack trust in those controls. Uh, but, and if you have no trust in controls, then why apply those controls in the first place? 
kind of thing, right? It, 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 it still it doesn't make it doesn't give me clarity. Now the thing is, if you go onto Wikipedia, right, I'm going to read out the uh, the definition of defense in depth. It says the term defense in depth in computing is inspired by a military strategy of the same name, but it's quite different in concept. The military strategy revolves around having a weaker perimeter defense and intentionally yielding space to buy time, envelope, and ultimately counterattack an opponent. Whereas information security strategy simply involves multiple layers of control, but not intentionally seeding round. So do you know what that means to me? That to me, right, okay, so if we were to adopt the military, uh, the true uh, kind of origin of defense in depth in, 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 in IT world, right, what does that mean? That means honeypot. That's what I see as it's intentionally having a weak perimeter so you can start adding honeypots and they essentially figure out what is it that the attacker is trying to do to you, work out you know what attack vectors they're trying to attack and learn from it. With essentially, as far as I'm concerned, these are your detective controls, which will be feeding into your preventative controls, right? But we've you know, en masse have adopted the the computing term or defense in depth and adding all of this fortification and really preventing ourselves from knowing all of these unknowns. And it really, and I still today, and again, this is that another opportune moment where if we had a live calling session, I would love to hear from uh, from our security professionals and our security colleagues as to um, the, the benefits and value that um, the computing terminology or defense in depth provides as opposed to actually intentionally having that weak perimeter on the assumption we have a fortified control within the data layer. Don't you think, though, that a lot of the conceptions that we have, and in some cases misconceptions that we have, are a uh, almost a mistranslation of the traditional on-premise mindset uh, versus the cloud mindset? Right. So what I tend to find is I speak to security professionals and they, they require certain things when it comes to uh, infrastructure. Right. And these things that they require. It's very on premise kind of based, even though the infrastructure is cloud hosted and the network perimeters are different. Right. So don't you think that a lot of these uh, kind of misconceptions are actually mistranslations of what that means? So if we go back to defense in depth for example, um, do you feel like defense in depth is maybe not as well understood because maybe it means different things because we're now in a sort of a cloud first kind of world? 100%. And the same goes for the the the, the uh, term that I believe has been just thrown around very cheaply, zero trust security uh, model. Uh, those, those Both of those terminologies, right? Defense in depth and zero trust security model, I think is either misunderstood or it's misconstrued. You know, I, it, it, I remember once I asked uh, a security professional, um, why are you trying to have multiple different subnets for different environments if we're able to isolate these applications from different environments at a different layer? So I, I, although I've even shown it to that we can isolate applications at a different layer, why do you still insist on having multiple subnets? His, his answer was, um, what was his answer was because zero trust. <laughs> I'm like, what what does that mean? Because zero trust. It's like 
zero trust means zero perimeter. Zero trust does not mean micro multiple perimeters. And, and this is this is what's poorly misunderstood, you know. And and I think I I do genuinely believe that is is the same for defense in depth, right? It's it's because I feel that the, even with the defense in depth, the model of defense in depth, in in essence, well, guys, in the computing model of defense in depth, in essence, um. Uh, misplaces, or I say misplaces, distrusts the layers of control at the upper level, at the application layer, at the data layer, at the kind of, and have not having trust, therefore applying and also essentially trusting your network perimeter layer uh, or or your physical layer, right? Uh, and both of them, uh, I believe, at that point, you you've you've invalidated your zero trust and at the same time your defense in depth really does not have a coherent story behind it i i, I have to agree i think you know i gave actually gave a talk about um how hashicorp helps enable the zero trust mindset uh for application architectures right so what i did in that talk uh, at HashiConf is I took a very common application architecture uh, with the infrastructure and I used the HashiCorp stack to start to implement some of this zero trust mindset. Now, what we mean by that is we trust nothing and we verify everything. It says nothing about perimeters, right? We're just talking about everything is going to be identity driven, right? Any controls that we have is going to be identity based. So identity is the core construct, right? It's the concept that we need to kind of get to grips with. So when you look at the, the cloud, for example, so uh, some years ago when I was working with Microsoft Azure, they introduced this concept of um, uh, service endpoints, right? And essentially what a service endpoint was doing was extending the identity of the, the network to a specific uh, function like so maybe Azure Key Vault for example right you can now give it an identity and then you have controls as to what can speak to it and what what can't speak to it and I think that's actually a really good example of how you can take that mindset right so you know that the previous colleague of yours that mentioned that the reason why he wanted to implement certain controls is because of zero trust that's you know not implementing the the mindset really it's uh you know it's, it's almost like a checkbox exercise there um just to kind of fit a buzzword i mean this with no disrespect um but essentially what we have to do is we have to kind of challenge our our, our thoughts on on these things we have to really question why we're doing certain things uh, like you questioned why are you doing these things and if the answer is because zero trust you know that to me, just kind of signals that we need to actually look at what what is what is it that we're actually trying to achieve here, right? And I go back to my Azure example, right? There's a very clear uh, reason why you would implement service endpoints. There's a very clear reason why Microsoft developed this feature as part of their cloud offering is because identity is the key. It's the key. And you need to be able to expand uh, the kind of remit of what you can give an identity to, which is one of the hardest things you can do in computing is that identity piece. Um, so yeah, I, I'm just going to kind of throw that one back to you because at the end of the day, I, I feel like the more we kind of talk about these things, the more we kind of think outside the box, right? Because I think the box is actually a really good analogy. The box is like your data center perimeter, right? 
so I think we need to think outside the box, right? We need to start thinking a bit more broader. We need to understand that if we don't migrate our mindset, we are at greater risk, uh, even with all of these controls in place. A hundred percent. And the thing is, right, is like you said, is trying to apply a network perimeter in the cloud assumes there is a perimeter or there is some, some your security perimeter, what perimeter, right? You have to ask yourself that question. Like a, a VPC is not, it, it's a construct, it's a programmable construct. It's not a network that you're then trying to apply some kind of you know, perimeter controls around. Um, you know, and so therefore it leads to what you just said, suggested is then how do we secure our data? How do we secure or verify Again, right? How do we authenticate and 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 verify? And what is it that we're verifying? In the past, we were verifying or validating IP addresses, right? Now we're saying actually no, we want to verify and validate identity, right? And identity, if the whole I am, right? We, you know, what we're saying is that there's identity, there's authorization, authentication, and there's authorization, right? And the the, the three together, you know, in essence, is obviously what's providing you. Or would be your core set of controls uh, to validate and uh, and authorize uh, access between uh, two endpoints. Now, what's interesting, right, Rob, is that what you obviously what, what you touched on. I think it, what, a few years into the cloud for for many organizations, this is this is not new. I mean, if if you've been in AWS or Azure or Google Cloud, you know the the the, the concept of um, authorizing identity through IAM controls, let's just say, to access a, a, a um, S3 storage bucket is not new. But once you've understood, and many are embracing that, right? That in AWS, they've done a super job uh, by adding kind of like this whole ARN to every object that they have. So essentially, this is on, on identity. Now, we're now also seeing a growing trend of multi-cloud. Okay, so now in the, in the world of multi-cloud, you have a new set of challenges, right? You know, to, before when you were on a single cloud, yeah, you're le- you've leveraged the Google Cloud's identity platform and the identity, each one of these objects have the identity. Google Cloud recognizes both endpoints and are able to then allow access between the two. How do you do that when you have multi-cloud? At which point, you know, Google Cloud's identity and AWS's identity and Azure's identity are, are very different in construct and do not recognize one another. Right. You now come from a new set of challenges, uh, you know. But the, the key thing at this point is, and I think this is where coming back to that whole day two piece, right? These would be your day two challenges. And really, if you if you're there at that point, as in like you're you're there where you're actually in a predicament that, and you're facing this challenge, you're in a good spot because you've moved beyond, you know, looking at you recognize identity is the core of your kind of your your entity and um authentication endpoints now the next challenge comes is okay how do we um what's the word i'm looking for is uh, democratize that between between the clouds essentially that should be a part of your kind of multi-cloud adoption framework in my opinion and and maybe this time around i'll probably throw it back to you to understand what are your thoughts on on that piece perfect timing because what i'm thinking is yeah we're talking about uh, the different identity constructs uh, across the different clouds, right? And the only way you can really translate uh, the two or the three or however many clouds you're in is through a common denominator. And in this day and age, that is probably going to be your service mesh, right? So 
it leads me to a belief and you know Adil and I and a lot a lot of the HashiCorp ambassadors uh, have been speaking about this uh, quite a lot over the last few months especially some of our um, more senior developers here at HashiCorp you know um, the service mesh probably started off as more of a connectivity network construct right but it's very quickly evolved because it's because of its position in the stack into what I feel is a security control right it's the thing that knows how to communicate from one service to the other. It's the thing that can control what services can communicate to each other. And how does it do that? It has to rely on some type of identity, right? So if you if you look at um, Kubernetes, for example, the identity construct in Kubernetes is going to be your service account. So it's basically going to take that identity construct and then use that to authenticate the identity of the application before it can start routing the traffic to its destination, right? And, you know, you can literally take any of these platforms, identity constructs, and the common denominator is going to be the service mesh, right? And I think even at HashiCorp, we, we're, start, we're starting to really believe that. If you look at the way that that console has been uh, uh, evolving in more recent times, things like being able to uh, use... Um, OIDC and Jot to authenticate in there, they're starting to really understand just the power behind uh, what console or the service mesh, if we're going to speak a bit more broadly, represents. Um, and it's actually, I don't really want to go into this too much, but it just feels like an appropriate time to mention it, is, you know, Adil and I and, and some other folks have been kind of toying with the idea of um, uh, the secure introduction of secret zero and if the service mesh can have a role to play in that and the kind of thinking behind that is well the service mesh has knowledge of all the applications so if you can solve the challenge of providing identity to all of the applications then surely then you can use that as your identity provider right Slightly different conversation, but it's, you know, I'm throwing it out there because I want more people to start thinking about why that will or won't work. Because um, I think these are types of conversations that we need to have when we think about secure introduction. That is most definitely not a solved problem. Um, all of us wrestle with that. Uh, but I do think when you're in the cloud, so you mentioned AWS, ARNs. When you're in the cloud, uh, the, the cloud providers have, have done a great job of... Um, attaching identity to virtual machines, for example, right? Um, so, yeah, you know, we have all sorts of integrations here at HashiCorp that takes advantage of that. Uh, and the, the idea behind that is, so if we take Azure, for example, their identity construct is something we call a service principle. If we flip it over to GCP, they have service accounts. And, you know, these are all identities, right? And what they can do is they can provision these identities and attach them to a piece of infrastructure, right? And as long as the thing that it's trying to authenticate with is within that cloud provider's remit, then that's it's like automatic authentication, right? Which is nice. So we at HashiCorp, um, we've started to leverage those things there. So for example, with uh, Vault, if you wanted to use uh, Google KMS um, to you know initialize your Vault and uh, produce the uh, recovery keys and so on and so forth, normally you would have to give it the uh, credentials file and to, to authenticate with the cloud but now if you're hosting vault in gcp you can take that identity construct and then you can authenticate with that and now you have access to the kms as long as you know it has the 
authorization, which is the the other auth part of it, um, to perform those actions there. Um, so, you know, I think it was, it was actually a perfect segue into that. And I think when we think about day two, at day one, these are some of the challenges that we just don't consider, right? Um, so we think, oh, okay, it's nice. All we have to do is we write our infrastructure as code. That's fine. Um, and then we'll just use something like Vault, for example, to uh, get the secrets for this infrastructure to where it needs to get to. Okay, but how does Terraform authenticate with Vault, right? Well, you know, depending on what you're doing, if you're using Terraform Cloud, there, there are ways of doing that. You can set sensitive uh, environment variables and so on and so forth. But it's not so straightforward for every kind of platform integration. And these are some of the things that when we get to day two, you're going to run into and you're really going to scratch your head trying to solve these things. Uh, you know, uh, we've all scratched our head trying to solve these things and none of us have really come up with good answers in reality. Um, the, the kind of core understanding or the consensus, I'd say, that the, the industry has gotten to at the moment with where things are is where you have to trust something, right? And whatever that thing is that you trust, that's what you're going to delegate the the control to, right? You're gonna you're gonna let that be the thing that you give secret zero to, and then that will then distribute the, the authentication authorization on your behalf, right? Um, so you know, I mean, what are some of the other day two kind of things that kind of come up, um, maybe surrounding this, or maybe not so much in uh, this kind of space? You're absolutely right. It's brought to a whole new segue here, right? The thing is. Um... It's interesting, I, I, to say the least. The whole kind of, like you said, secret zero. Now, um, before I talk about talk to talk to you about kind of obviously the vault authenticating Terraform, let's talk about this whole secret zero. See, the thing is, we have to understand is what is a secret. Let's just ask ourselves this. You know, uh, let's take it very basic concept: username and password. What is it in in the concept of where does it fit between your identity authentication and authorization? I would say it fits in the kind of identity space, right? And, well, identity slash authentication space. Why? Because your password is your attestation of who you are. You're, so your password will attest to. And that's where how the whole two-factor now comes into play, right? You know, what do you know, uh, what you have, uh, and then uh, where you are, I believe. There's a few, obviously, different ones, and two out of the, uh, out of the multiples, will be your kind of two-factor authentication. Now, two-factor, again, two-factor authentication, why? It's, 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 it's basically adding reliable attestation. Coming Now, let's take that in the concept of AWS, ARN, GCP's kind of service account and um, Azure's kind of principal uh, identity here, right? The attestation at this point is, is the platform in itself. The platform has created the identity. Therefore, the platform, um, by having the intrinsic knowledge of what it's created and you have to validate through their kind of internal CMDB, let's just call it, um, is able to attestate, uh, have that attestation that it is that the VM is what the VM is. And I, therefore, it's enough for me to add an ARN or a service account principle attached to this VM and be able to say who it is. So like when you use the example of Vault, being able to kind of uh, um, take a KMS key uh, just by virtue of being this instance or this service account, where in your IAM role, you said that this service account is allowed to use this KMS key. Now, GCP is able to uh, validate that, authenticate that, because the service account attached to it in, in itself is that attestation. 
So let's come back to that whole secret zero. If we're able to have a form of attestation that requires no secret, then the, the, the whole concept of secret zero also diminishes. And, and it's an interesting concept. I mean, I, I can't give you a real life example of what that means other than obviously the, the, the cloud native uh, kind of IAM control that they have. But, you know, what would that look like if we were to say in the in the world of Vault or Console, at which point really when we're using, say, ORDC or, or Jot, essentially we're just delegating that to another identity provider to be able to provide that attestation, which now leads me on to the piece about, okay, what does that mean? That means that really you're, say, the likes of Ping or Okta or even OIDC, you're saying that you're, you're trusting that. That's your trusted broker, right? And then allowing them to do the attestation for you and or, or you're, you're accepting their attestation that they are who they, they say they are. So that which leads me on to then about authenticating Terraform when in my last role where we used kind of Terraform Vault provider, and we had obviously Terraform Enterprise, multiple workspaces, and we had a single Terraform Enterprise as we considered that to be our, as part of that shared environment. Like you wouldn't have a dev Git repository and a prod Git repository, just like you would have a dev AD and a prod AD and the endpoints being obviously kind of authenticated. Likewise, we consider TFE to be that shared, shared environment as well as Vault. So we would have non-production workspaces as well as production workspaces. Now, as I was kind of uh, spearheading the introduction of Vault uh, and uh, you know, unofficially kind of the product owner at, at that point, um, I had raised I raised concerns as a HashiCorp customer internally as well as to HashiCorp about what is the best way to authenticate Terraform workspaces. And um, at face value, the answer at first I've got was often, well, the easiest way to res- resolve this is, is to trust TFE in its in, in, in entirety. And, and that could be able to buy virtual service account. But that wasn't good enough for me because I thought to myself, that kind of breaks the value of what Vault brings. You know, and in, in essence, it, it's, it's not the model that Vault is trying to advocate. I mean, the thing is, Vault, if I say Vault is a secrets manager, I feel like I'm not doing justice to it. I mean, secrets manager, again, you know, it means that there's secrets involved. Whereas when you, if you went with dynamic secrets, at which point, you know, it's more of a dynamic access management type of kind of thing. So coming back to that again, about in that whole kind of model and of what is that Vault is trying to achieve. Yeah. I feel that today we haven't yet solved that uh, uh, that point of contention of how we authenticate per workspace. I mean, what we've had to do in the end, uh, essentially I had to use kind of app role, um, although I feel in hindsight, I feel maybe token would have been better um, because as you can, with app role, if you save it as a variable, it's still kind of uh, copied in state. Although state is encrypted and you can have controls access to state, but with the with the token, if you stay as an environment variable, then you can't capture it anyways, without going too deep. The point is, we've had some form of workaround to uh, uh, authenticate per workspace. Now, if had, and I'm in the kind of pursuit on that journey where we're able to attach identity to such a granular level, it it, it opens doors to, you know, to what level and really taking that principle of least privileged access approach to to, to a whole new level. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think it's... um... It's it's one of those things that until you you've attempted to try to uh, solve that problem, you're not going to realize how complicated it is. There's a reason why 
we've had so many years of of evolution in in the computing and infrastructure world and we still don't have a really good solution to that right um and i think what we have to keep doing is looking for what the common denominators are uh because you know i mentioned service mesh but you know not everyone is using a service mesh for different reasons right but it's just become a more common addition to application and infrastructure architecture right um, so we have to maybe go a layer below that and say, well, what is more common, right? And there's always going to be some level of compute there. So what's common across these things here? And then even like when we think about, um, you know, uh, the common denominator for identity across different clouds and even on-prem, uh, is there another way to translate identity from one place to another, right? And these are some of the, the questions that we need to keep asking ourselves and you know we, we have to realize that the answers aren't going to come easy there's not a single person or a single organization that's going to solve that i think we just need to start as an industry making steps in the right direction to get closer and closer to what a good solution could look like um, I, I definitely do not have the answers there um, but i think we've kind of entered into a brand new realm uh, and we're approaching time um it's sounding like we've got to bring you back again. Um, at this rate, we might have to uh, start our own podcast and call it Keeping It Secure. <laughs> <laughs> One thing leads to leading to another, eh? I mean, 100%. I mean, the thing is, right, it's just, you know, uh, before we, I go too deep dive into it, but essentially, look, coming back to that whole kind of identity in a multi-cloud context, right, what is that common denominator? And then if you, like you said, right, the... You're not going to find the answer by trying to do enough whiteboarding. The key here is to start, right? Start pursuing the to answer the question and continue to ask the question, right? And the thing is, like for example, okay, in in a single cloud context or even a multi cloud context, right? You could just say, oh, simple. Let's look at the common denominator. It could be VMs. It could be IP addresses, right? Now at this point, in a in a cloud native world, everything except the data are supposed to be dynamic. If you went with the whole kind of core factor approach, then your IP address is irrelevant because they're ephemeral. Your compute is irrelevant because they're ephemeral. You know, your pods, all the way to your pods and containers are irrelevant because they're ephemeral, right? So you need your identity to be something that is not ephemeral. I, I say not ephemeral, rather it is not dependent on these dynamic environments, right? Now that's where by adding the spanner into works, really, it's like, okay, again, I don't have the answer to it, but it, it, these are your right questions. And you have to think about it. As you said, right, these are pr pretty much your day two problems, your day two challenges. If you are at that stage where you see these challenges, you're in a good spot. But this is where then you've you've graduated to then your next set of challenges you know, until we can get to a point. And, and these are things where essentially we need to be in a position where you know, where Google advocates, and Zero Trust initially pretty much comes from that whole, uh, how Google advocates beyond corp. And as, as if I was to explain simplistically to someone what is beyond corp, I will say, imagine every one of your application is a, is a public application out as if it was on the DMZ or, you know, out, out on the public, every single one of the application. Therefore, I would give, go as far as saying, the true essence of if you really, and that's going to be hard to achieve, but a true essence of zero trust would also mean um, refute, I say refute, what's the word I want to use? Dismissing the, the, the fact that a VPC, a private VPC or a private network, you know, 
you would even dismiss that context and we just put it in the, in the default VPC or public VPC on the on the assumption that you've really secured your application or you've really placed your application as if it was out on the public internet. At, at that point, you know, the questions and, and the challenges are a whole new realm, as you say. Right. So what I'm going to do is just to wrap up, I'm going to latch on to something you say, just to leave uh, just uh, some final thoughts here. So two things you said. The first one, you said that uh, calling Vault a secrets manager doesn't do it justice. Uh, I totally agree. And what I've been saying to people uh, more recently is that, you know, I used to say it was a secrets manager and then kind of graduated and started calling it an identity broker. In reality, I, I feel like Vault is a standard library. It's, you know, it, it covers all of, of your needs when it comes to uh, security. Uh, it, it handles the piece when it comes to encryption. It, it, it's pretty much taking care of everything for you. So just the, the phrase here is Vault is your standard library when it comes to security, right? DevOps Rob said that. My final thought of the day is latching onto something else that DevOps Adil said, which is that in terms of trying to find a solution for things like secret zero problems, right? The key thing is you have to start somewhere, right? So I'm going to leave you with a quote. And as a content creator, I say it to a lot of people that always say that they want to create content, but they never really get started is perfection is the enemy of progress. On that, I'm going to leave you. Thank you very much for joining us, Adil. I've enjoyed this. I think we might have to do a part three or we'll have to talk offline if we just start a new podcast or something. I don't know. I know. It's, really it's, it's, it's never ending. I, I, I tell you what, you're right. I mean, I, I feel like, you know what? We've just scratched the surface. We've only just touched a few of this. Uh, and again, thanks for having me, Rob. Uh, you know what? I'm looking forward to it. It's just continuing our conversation. Definitely. Thank you so much. Take care. You've been listening to HashiCast with your host, DevOps Rob. Today's guest has been Adil Ahmad. Be sure to tune in next time.